0: you don't have to be loud to be a leader. It's about figuring out what works for you. And I think people gravitate towards leaders that have found what works for them authentically, even if that looks very different from what a traditional leader looks like.
1: I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to to 9to5ish With The Skin. Today, our guest is Annie Jean-Baptiste. She is the first ever Director of Product Inclusion and Equity at Google, where she is focused on making sure all of Google's products are inclusive for all users. Annie has also written a book on the subject titled Building for Everyone, the first book about building inclusive products. And she's the founder of Equity Army, a community of people who are committed to ensuring everyone especially historically marginalized people, feel seen in any product or service. Annie, welcome to 9 to 5-ish.
0: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
1: Before we get into the conversation, we'd like to do a brief warm-up, lightning round, quick questions, quick answers. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> what was the first job you got paid for? Babysitting. Were you good at it?
0: I'd like to think so. I've been surrounded by kids, I feel like, all my life. And so I was a mother's helper at 10. And she kept me on for a lot of years. So I feel like I must have been pretty good.
1: (laughs) Do you have any hobbies or skills? And when I say skills, like, of course, you have skills or you wouldn't be on the show. But, you know, like (laughs) special skills. I
0: recently restarted taking cello lessons. I started playing the cello when I was three years old and then stopped in college. And recently I was like, I think I want to start this again. So it's funny because I feel like it's kind of like riding a bike where you understand and remember some things, but some things I'm like very remedial at, but I'm hoping to get back to my pre-college days. What is one word
1: a direct report would use to describe you? Tenacious. That is a great word.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I hope they would say that, but I think they would.
1: What's something we can't Google about you?
0: Ooh, that's a good one. That I have a bunch of chickens and a horse. I have silky chickens, which are, if you look them up, super fluffy chickens. And I have them in the backyard and started horseback riding during the pandemic and actually adopted a, a horse. And so that has been a really fun, fun experience. Last TV
1: show you binge watched?
0: Ooh, I love anything Land, So I've been binge watching Bridgerton and, and all the other shows.
1: One person you would want to have at a dinner party, living or dead?
0: I would say my great grandmother. I was fortunate to have some years with her when I was young. And I do have some memories of her. But I think as I get older, I get even more grateful for the time that you have kind of with Generations of family and intergenerational kind of relationships. And so I would love to be able to be with her as an adult. So
1: that's a good segue because talking about that and talking about intergenerational relationships, it makes me think that there was something about your family, your history, how you grew up that influenced your career because getting to the intersection of product and inclusion is not like a major in college. So How'd you get to be kind of at the start of this journey?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, when I look back over my career and kind of thread the needle backwards, it makes perfect sense that I would end up here. But I agree with you that, you know, in high school or college, it wasn't like I was like, oh, I'm going to be working on product inclusion and equity because that didn't exist. Right. But to your point around kind of relationships and family and culture, I think all of that set the kind of framework for who I am and how I show up at work. I'm Haitian-American by background, and so family is very important giving back and kind of civil service is very important. And that has always kind of been instilled in me that, you know, I am going to move through the world in a certain way, and there may be barriers and limitations, and I should kind of work to mitigate those. But also, I should look around and figure out where I can use my privilege or my experiences to help unlock for other people. And I think, you know, when you are from multiple historically marginalized backgrounds, right? Like a lot of times when I explain to uh, someone who is not familiar with their work, what intersectionality can look like, I say, I'm a black woman who's also left-handed. It's not like I'm black on Monday, left-handed on Tuesday and a woman on Wednesday, right? I'm all of those things all of the time. And it affects how I move through the world. It affects how the world views me. And it definitely affects how I interact with products and services. And so being in a big family where, you know, people are all different skin tones, people are all different ages. Some people don't speak English as a first language, right? I think that I was immersed in the multitudes that encompass what makes someone who they are, and also understanding that in different situations, you may not be the default, right? And so how does that affect your experience? I think that that just kind of grew and grew and blossomed to where I am today, where it's actually making technology that when done well kind of amplifies people's lives and allows them to thrive and feel seen and show up and feel thought of. And I think that that's a core human need to feel seen and validated. And so that's really kind of like what product inclusion and equity looks like in practice.
1: For someone listening who may not be in the tech world, what is your job entail? Like, what are you actually responsible for at Google? And what are some of the things you've worked on?
0: My job is to make sure that the products that Google puts out into the world, whether it be a Pixel or a laptop or Google Assistant, making sure that everyone can use it, right? And that everyone feels seen and validated in using those products. And so an example of that work, before the Assistant launched, we actually did what we call adversarial testing, which is testing a product before it launches and actually breaking it before it launches. And what we wanted to do was make sure that we brought in a lot of different perspectives that have historically been at the margins of design. So bringing people from different cultures, different genders, different ages together to understand what would you not want the assistant to say, but also what would you want it to say? Tell me a fact about pride, right? Things like that so that people can interact with technology and feel like they were thought of in the process. And so my job is really looking end-to-end at development and design and making sure that we get those voices at the margins into the center of that development and design process.
1: How did this role come to be? Because ultimately, like you became the first ever director of product inclusion, but that didn't exist. So how did you start to see that there was a need for it and that there were there was a need for someone, I think there's two things that result in an actual role. Like there's enough thematically that there is an issue that needs to be taken on. And then understanding that actually putting someone in a headcount is a way to help do that. Was this something that you saw and advocated for? How did that story kind of evolve?
0: Yeah. So I think the first thing, and I I agree with you in terms of like how a role can get created, right? Like that doesn't happen all the time. I think the first thing is, is identifying a problem or identifying a gap. And so I think that whenever you are kind of working at something and you kind of say, well, what about X, Y, and Z? And that doesn't exist. That's an opportunity for you, right? To be able to kind of suss out what is there. And so I think for me and a few others, you know, almost 10 years ago, We kind of started to ask the question, what does inclusion look like in product design? And that wasn't something that people were talking about. And we had a bunch of launches that were coming up like assistant, like kind of camera sensors and phones where we could kind of experiment and partner and collaborate with teams. So I think the first thing is kind of like identifying a gap, right, or an opportunity. I think the second thing is really understanding how to, I guess, pivot or create a narrative that works for different types of people, right? So in business, not everyone resonates with one thing, right? So you want to find ways to kind of connect to different people. And I think that with product inclusion equity, we always talk about, you know, the business case and the human case for inclusion. And so really starting to crystallize those things and also adapt based on who you are talking to. And then the third thing is, I think, whatever business you're in, right, like you should be thinking about the user or the customer and be very customer centric. And I think, again, from my upbringing, being human-centered is just like innate, but wanted to figure out how I could do that in my career as well.
1: One of the things that I think is a really good way to think about equity and inclusion work in any workplace, like, you know, obviously we're talking about Google and big tech or even the skim, which is, you know, a venture-backed company, is exactly what you talked about, right? Like there's the moral part, which you hope that you have a workforce full of people that understand this, and also there is the business rationale. Talk a little bit in in terms of someone that is at a smaller organization or they're thinking about starting their own small business, how to use that framing to make the case for why this is so important.
0: Totally. So I think that there are a few things. I think the first thing is, if you look at kind of where the world is evolving into, what got us here won't get us there. When you look at Gen Z, who is the most diverse generation ever, and really wants to align their values with brands, or you look at the fact that one thing all of us have in common is that we're going to age, right? So thinking about accessibility is really important. Or you look at even in the U.S., you look at the demographics with Black and Hispanic Latinx customers and consumers. Again, these are groups that may have historically been underrepresented, but just because a group is underrepresented doesn't mean they don't have power. They're setting trends. They're they're moving the zeitgeist forward. And so it's really important to think about that. I think the other thing is that a lot of times, you know, with companies, and again, no matter what size they'll say, well, I have a target user. And I think what happens is sometimes we need to kind of expand who our users could and should be even within that target group, right? If your target audience is women between 45 and 65, there are women who are of different races, right? Different religions, don't all live in the US, speak different languages, different abilities, et cetera, right? And so again, thinking about the intersections of dimensions of identity, I think for any business makes a lot of sense.
1: So I want to talk about that last point. Your book is called Building for Everyone, which is all about helping people build more inclusive products. At the same time when you're talking about brand building, there's kind of like if you build for everyone, you're not building for anyone. Now I know that the intentions are very different, but I mean, how would you challenge people to think about still having a especially if you're thinking about it as kind of a a niche business or something where you don't have the ability to build for everyone out there, how should you think through some inclusion, like best practices? And and where do you think that that should start?
0: So I would start with the curbed cut effect. And for those that aren't familiar with the curbed cut effect, the curbed cut effect is named after the cut in the sidewalk that originally started in the 70s for people with wheelchairs. But if you think about who uses the, that cut in the curb now, it's everyone. It's people with suitcases, skateboards, shopping carts, strollers, right? We all use that cut in the sidewalk. And I use that example to say, when you build for historically marginalized groups, the benefits benefit everyone, not just that group. And so what happens is when you're finding kind of the gaps or opportunities for those groups, When you start to mitigate them, it actually leads to a better end product period, not just a better end product for insert demographic here. There are a lot of current examples. If you think about closed captioning, I have a lot of friends who, you know, have just had a baby, right? And they want to watch something on YouTube or they want to watch something on you know, Instagram and they use closed captioning. And so I think that that it would be my kind of first push is break that misconception that if you focus on a historically marginalized group, that it's just a small subset and it's not your target audience because the benefits will cascade throughout. I think the second thing I would say is it's not about not having a target, especially for smaller Businesses like I've worked with Google for Startups and other areas. And and I totally get that that can be a different context, right? But what we're asking is for you to broaden the pool of the target users. It's not about saying, oh, you can't have women age 45 to 65 be your target. It's about saying, how are you being intentional about thinking about the whole universe of who is inside that demographic? Again, are you thinking about race? Are you thinking about ability? Are you thinking about socioeconomic status? And so it's really about, like, if you think of a funnel, I think a lot of times businesses are very low in the funnel because we all have cognitive bias, right? We all make mental shortcuts. That's how we move through the world. But the urge is to push back up the funnel, right? To be more general and be more intersectional and be more inclusive around who your users could and should be.
1: What's your own journey been like as a leader? Because you talk about being part of different. Historically underrepresented groups, and then this becomes also a big part of your work. And I'm assuming that at times, you know, if this is a wrong assumption, I would love to hear it too that this has not always been like the obvious thing or the easiest thing to have people understand off the bat why it's so important or why they need to make time for it now. Tell me a little bit about your professional journey as a leader.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I am an introvert, and so being a leader was not (laughs) kind of like what I had set out to do. I would much rather be kind of behind the scenes versus out in front. But I think what I've learned over time is that For introverts, what can be helpful is one, obviously pushing yourself out of your comfort zone because you have to find an authentic way to kind of like show up in the workplace. But two, that you can be a vessel for something you believe in and that can make being a leader easier, where it's not about you, but it's about kind of like what you are espousing and what you are pushing. And so I think that that has been super helpful for me. I think the other thing that I've been constantly kind of like growing in is how to find my authentic voice as a leader. You don't have to be loud to be a leader right? It's about really figuring out what works for you. And I think people gravitate towards leaders that have found what works for them authentically, even if that looks very different from what a traditional leader looks like. Being in tech for a very long time, I remember there were times where I was kind of like, oh, do I need to dress differently? Do I need to do X, Y, and Z? And really what that was about was making myself smaller, right? dimming my light in order to kind of assimilate. And there came a point where I said, I'm not going to do that. Right. It's not serving me. It's not serving anyone else. And, you know, I'm an almost six foot tall black woman. Right. Like I can't change any of that. Right. So I might as well lean into that and put my energy elsewhere to things that I care about. And so I think that that is a privilege, obviously. I'm not saying that everyone can do that at any stage in their career. But for me, finding my voice, figuring out how I wanted to show up authentically, even if that didn't look like a traditional leader, has been definitely kind of like a journey for me.
1: Did you change for a period of time? Like, what was that journey to come to something that you're now like, no, that didn't work for me. But I think a lot of people listening are feeling that, like, do I change this about myself? Do I change that before they've gotten to like, no, I'm just going to be me and that's okay. What's been the most challenging part of that for you?
0: Yeah, it's funny. I remember I had a a mentor, um, Karen, who was really particular and pointed about bringing me into meetings. I feel like I was like not quite ready for, but like she knew that that was how I was going to grow. And she really believed in me. And I'm, I'm so grateful kind of for her leadership and mentorship and sponsorship. And I remember there was one time where she had myself her and another um, teammate who's a close friend now in the room. And I was supposed to be presenting and I was presenting to a bunch of executives. And I mean, I memorized this presentation. I like went over it probably a thousand times. I was so nervous and I just wanted to show up super buttoned up, super competent. Like I was coming in, you know, young black woman, right. And all of that kind of combining. And so I remember I went into the presentation and I thought it went so great, right? Like, I didn't mess up. I didn't stumble. I, like, felt it was super clear. And I got out and I said, that that was amazing. Like, what do you think? And they were both, like, they both looked at me and they were like, what was that? That wasn't you at all. Like, it was like watching a robot. Like, we didn't see any of your personality. You didn't crack any joke. And so they both and separately were like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what you think good looks like. But, like, that isn't it because there's none of the special sauce in there. And so I think that that was an awakening for me where it was like, there are probably two ends of the spectrum. There's the like, person you are with the people that you're most comfortable with, where you don't even think about how you show up, right? Because you're so comfortable with them. And then there's like the work person that's so buttoned up, right? And if your family saw that, they'd be like, who is that? And I think that the goal is to find somewhere in the middle, right? It's going to look a little bit different for everyone, depending on what the culture is or where you are in your career. And so I don't want to say that like, this is, there's an exact kind of sweet spot, but over years, I have tried to test where that is. In this context, do I crack a joke? Do I lead with something that's kind of silly? Or is this a place where like, I don't want to do that. And this is why, right? And so I think that again, like with leadership and fi- not even leadership, it's just finding your voice at work. It's going to also take trial and error. And so don't be put off if you, know, you try something and that isn't perfect, It's all about kind of like the resilience to keep kind of molding and crafting. But I definitely, you know, now do I still kind of practice things over and over and over? Yes. Like, I don't think that that will go away. But I also kind of leave space for the things that I'm uniquely positioned to deliver to come out. Going back to kind of like what resonates with people, I think when people can see that you are confident and being yourself, whatever that looks like, that resonates more than just like this cookie cutter kind of like delivery. And so again that that has been a work in progress, but I think it was a really really valuable lesson.
1: What's something you're still working on?
0: Ooh, I think in new situations speaking up. I had another mentor who noticed in in team meetings that like I would not say anything. Like I I happened to be on a team where there were a lot of people who like <laughs> spoke a lot, and I think for introverts that can be very hard and I think as the conversation more and more, you're kind of then like, oh my God, like I haven't said anything. Just like you start spinning a little bit. But I would always go to him after and say, hey, like you had said X, Y, and Z. And like, this is my point of view on that. And he sat me down one day after that had happened multiple times and said like, one, how many times have you been in a meeting where you didn't say something and then someone said what you were thinking? And I said a lot. They said, would it be okay if I started to create space for you in every meeting so that you didn't feel like you had to kind of like pile on or like push through all of these kind of like stronger personalities to give your point of view? Because I think it's really valuable. And I think that was one of the first times where I was like, wow, like that is what kind of like, first of all, very empathetic leadership looks like. Right. Like he was very perceptive and found that and he was going to push me to also not just like sit in the fact that I'm, you know, like there are a lot of introverts at work, right? So you have to kind of build that muscle and get out of your comfort zone. And so that was kind of like one first example of where I was like, okay, like just try to say one thing in a meeting. But I've noticed even in new situations or with networking or what have you, I definitely am someone who leans back. And so pushing myself to kind of, lean forward. And sometimes I say to myself, if you meet one person and have an authentic interaction, like that's a win, right? And so it's not about the the quantity, but it's about the quality. But finding my voice in new situations definitely is something that I constantly work on. It sounds
1: like you had a great leader in that meeting. I feel like I'm taking notes of of that one. Yes, he is. Seth, he's wonderful. <laughs> so I want to talk about some recent developments in, in the DEI space. So In 2020, obviously, between the pandemic and the social movements that followed, there was a big spotlight on DEI. And because of that, you know, many companies started bringing on people to head up that role. And then in recent months, many of those people who were initially hired have left. And when I say left, I think there were a lot of reasons behind that departure. How do you view the current landscape now? How do you think that companies can work better to incorporate DEI initiatives at all levels?
0: Totally. Yeah. So one thing I'm grateful for is the fact that we started this work in 2014. We started DEI kind of internal work well before that. I actually was on that team before I started doing product inclusion. So doing kind of internal representation and culture work. And so I think that you know, just like anything else, you have to think about this as a long-term strategy, right? It's not something that ebbs and flows given outside constraints or environments. This is something that is foundational to how you do business. And so, you know, for us, what we do is set kind of OKRs and accountability structures just like any other product or feature, right? Because that's just how much this is important to Google and to leadership and and to, you know, people at all different levels. I think the second thing is, is like, again, it's balancing that business and the human case, right? So how does this kind of make your product, service or experience better? We have examples of how really kind of prioritizing product inclusion and equity in our development process has led to better products right has led to us leaning into our mission to make things universally accessible and useful right that means everyone and so i think that it has to be treated just like any other critical part of your company's strategy and you have to find kind of like where are the touch points that you're kind of going to hold accountable i think the last thing is that sometimes with with dei or product inclusion equity people feel that it's only kind of leadership that takes it forward. But what I've actually found is I think it works best both top down and bottom up, right? And so there's a lot of kind of grassroots passion and effort and ideas. And I think that you win when you listen to those and figure out how to kind of align those with kind of company direction. The last thing I'll say is, again, when you look at kind of the makeup of the world, right, there are so many people from so many different backgrounds and experiences. And as a company, if you're creating things for someone else, you need to have those perspectives at the table. You cannot assume you know what people need. And so I think that, again, when you look at kind of from a business perspective, it's really critical that it's not just kind of a moment, but it's really foundational to how you do business.
1: Final question. Who's someone else we should have on this show?
0: Oh, (laughs) so many people. Ginny Clark is the first person that comes to mind. She is a former Googler, but now runs a really incredible coaching practice. And then the second person I'd say is Sheila Johnson of the Salamander Group. I've been able to see her speak once and I was so impressed and inspired by everything that she's created and built across multiple industries. And so, yeah, I would definitely be tuning into that one.
1: Well, thank you very much, Annie. Thank you so much for all of the the work you've done and the thoughtful insights. It's just amazing.
0: Oh, that makes me so happy.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise.